0: Well, if you have your Bibles with you, I'd encourage you to turn in them with me to Luke chapter 18, verses 18 through 30. Luke chapter 18, verses 18 through 30. This passage, we come across this narrative of Jesus' interaction with a certain ruler, this rich young ruler. So, Luke chapter 18, verses 18 through 30. Please pay careful attention, for this is the word of our God. And a ruler asked him, that is Jesus, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, all these I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. And Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, Then who can be saved? But he said, What is impossible with man is possible with God. And Peter said, See, we have left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, There is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive it many times more in this time and in the age to come, eternal life. Well, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. May he write this word upon our hearts this morning. Those of you who have been with us the last few weeks, you know that this chapter, Luke chapter 18, is a chapter about self-righteousness. We've seen self-righteousness exemplified in a number of characters in this chapter. You can think of the Pharisee in that parable from a few weeks ago. The Pharisee who prayed, I thank God that I'm I'm not like that tax collector right next to me. We've seen self-righteousness exemplified in the disciples as they look down upon children with self-righteous contempt, as not being worthy of Jesus' time, attention, and blessing. We've also witnessed the opposite of self-righteousness. Humility and faith. We've seen these qualities exemplified in a number of characters as well. The tax collector, crying out to God to have mercy on him, a sinner. The infants who are living examples of the nature of true faith. And now here in this passage, we continue to see this dialectic between self-righteousness and humility and faith. So this chapter has been a chapter about self-righteousness. Well why? Well, the reason why Luke is hitting on this theme so hard is because he knows that those who have sinful natures are naturally disposed to self-righteousness. And that includes all of us. Think of our society, for instance. Our society is naturally tribal. As those who are members of a tribe, we naturally look down with scornful contempt among those who don't belong to our tribe, those who transgress that tribe's doctrines of orthodoxy, as it were. We only have to watch the news for a few minutes to see this going on culturally and politically. But even within the church, as Christians, we struggle with self-righteousness. A couple of weeks ago, we considered the nature of Christian freedom and how with these matters of Christian freedom, which means God has not spoken explicitly to certain areas of life, i.e., meat sacrifice to idols, we have a tendency to think that our view on such matters is the holy option, the right option, and we may not be overt, but at least subtly look down upon others who come down the opposite, opposite side of the aisle on such issues. This self righteousness also looks like us beginning to subtly rest in what we bring to the table. Rest in our own virtue, piety, and and good works. So as to believe that our maintenance, the maintenance of our relationship before God, is at least partly conditioned upon what we bring to the table. Our maintenance. Uh, the the maintenance of this relationship at least partly conditioned upon our cooperation and participation with God's grace. And thus, self-righteousness and pride are co-conspirators. But there's also a a dark side of uh, of self-righteousness. When we don't meet the mark, when we fall short, the dark side is despair and deconstruction. And so in this passage, Jesus is continuing to pull this thread of self-righteousness. And in so doing, he completely unravels our false conception that we are indeed righteous in ourselves. Jesus does this in in three main ways. The first thing that Jesus does in this passage... He unravels this false conception that we are righteous in ourselves. He gives us a very important principle. This principle is that obedience to the law of God equals eternal life. Perfect obedience to the law of God equals eternal life. There's no other way to eternal life than through the law of God. For those of us who have taken e- uh, economics 101, we know that there are no free lunches. Well, Eternal life is never free. I always goes through the path of, eternal, of, of the law of God. Law of God equals, obedience to the law of God equals eternal life. Well, as you know, we are immediately introduced in this passage to uh, this individual who is referred to as a ruler, traditionally has been referred to as the rich young ruler. And this ruler is someone, according to one commentator, uh, there may be an influential wealthy man, a civic leader, someone who is known for his morality. But this young man was ambitious. Uh, This young man was someone who never really met a challenge that he felt like he couldn't face. He was a go-getter. He took life by the horns. And so this young man realizes, uh, as he hears about Jesus, this influential teacher, rabbi, who teaches with authority, a kind of authority that the other teachers of Israel do not possess. And he wants to talk to this rabbi, this teacher, and ask him arguably the most important question one could ask. What must I do to inherit eternal life? How can I be sure that I'm secure in the age to come? And so he says, good teacher, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus responds, interestingly, by saying, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Here, Jesus very perceptively is taking issue with this young man's definition of good. There's really two ways to define good. You can define it relatively or absolutely. And this rich young ruler is working with a relative definition of good. Which means he compares himself to those around him, and as he compares himself to those around him, he sees that he's doing pretty good. He might not be perfect, but he's better than those people in his circle of influence. Jesus might not be perfect, but he's better than the other teachers that he knows. He's working with a relative definition of good, which we'll we'll see manifested later on in in this this narrative. But Jesus here is calling him to have an absolute definition of good. a, A definition of good that's rooted in God's character. God alone is good. That is to say, God alone is perfect. It's that standard that this rich young ruler needs to compare himself to. Jesus isn't just a relatively good teacher. Jesus isn't absolutely good teacher. He's the son of God himself. Well, Jesus now proceeds and uh, to respond to this young man's questions uh, directly. He says, well, you know the commandments. You know the law of God. And he goes and lists a number of commandments. He says, well, uh, you know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and your mother. These are taken from the second table of the Ten Commandments. The sixth, the seventh, the eighth, the ninth, and the fifth. So Jesus here is answering this young man's question in a way that might seem a bit odd to us. Someone posed, you, uh, posed this question to you, you may not respond by saying, well you know the commandments of God. Go and do them. That's exactly what Jesus says. And thus Jesus is asserting this very important principle. The path to eternal life is the path of doing the law. Obeying the law. Eternal life can be earned in no other way. And our obedience needs to conform to God's absolute standard of goodness. Not a relative standard of goodness. God doesn't grade on a curve. He doesn't just accept your best efforts. And impute perfection to that. There's no participation, participation trophy in this game for eternal life. And this is something that resonates with the rest of Scripture. So, for instance, in Galatians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul, he quotes from, uh, from the, the, the law, the Pentateuch. He quotes from Moses, and he says, Cursed be everyone who does not continue in everything written in the book of the law to do them. If you don't obey the law perfectly, you are cursed. But then he goes on to say, again, quoting from the Old Testament, the one who does the law shall live by the law. Meaning if you do the law perfectly, you will inherit life, eternal life. So this, what Jesus is doing here isn't just out of the out of field. This is something that both the Old Testament teaches and Paul himself reasserts in the epistles. Eternal life only comes through the path of obeying the law. Well, this rich young ruler doesn't get it. He thinks to himself, okay, do not commit adultery, check. Do not murder, check. Do not steal, well, I haven't stolen anything of great value, so check. Do not bear false witness, I haven't told any great lies, check. Pretty good. Honor your father and mother, I've been a pretty respectful son, <laughs> check. I'm, I'm doing well. Again, it's a relative standard of, of goodness. I'm better than really most people in my, in my life, and so, yeah. I think God would look upon upon my efforts and and deem that to be worthy of eternal life? Well, Jesus says, "Well, hold on a minute." And here, what he does is he takes one of these commandments, particularly the eighth commandment, a "Do not steal," which has to do with possessions. He says, "Hold on a minute. You think you you're perfect? You think that you've done these these five commandments perfectly? Well, let me just take one of these commandments and flesh it out for you." He takes his Eighth Commandment, and he says, well, one thing you still lack, take all, the, all your wealth, sell it, give the proceeds to the poor, and come follow me. We know that the Eighth Commandment, uh, or I guess more broadly, when we come across commandments that prohibit a vice, it's also implicitly promoting the corresponding virtue. And when a commandment is calling us to do something positively, it's also implicitly forbidding the corresponding vice. And so the Eighth Commandment, which says do not steal, is also calling us, as Paul says in Ephesians 4, to work hard so that we may be able to help the poor in their need. And so Jesus is telling this rich young man, okay, are you willing to be generous, radically generous, and give to the poor? And we have to recognize that what Jesus is telling this young man, sell all that you have and give to the poor, is not something that's explicitly in, in the law of God. Nowhere in God's law are we called to give of our wealth, and we all are wealthy to some degree or another. Give it to the poor and, and, and follow Jesus. Some have taken this literally and it's led them to monasticism, vows of poverty. I think what Jesus is doing here is being a bit hyperbolic in order to convince this man of his sinfulness, to convince this man that he is viewing his wealth in an idolatrous way. He's guilty of greed and covetousness. And this young man finally realizes that, let alone, uh, apart from that, not, not only is he not able to keep all of these commandments, he can't even keep the Eighth Commandment. He's guilty of greed and, and, and being stingy. And we see that he, he departs. The parallel passage of Matthew says that he walks away sorrowful. He recognizes that he doesn't have what it takes to inherit eternal life. He feels the burden of God's law, and it crushes him. And so now Jesus steps back. <laughs> to his disciples, those who are in his midst, midst, and gives a commentary on the impossibility of being able to keep this principle, this principle of obey God's law and inherit eternal life. So that's the second thing that Jesus uh, teaches us here, is the impossibility for us as sinners to be able to obey God's law and earn eternal life. And he illustrates this with a very vivid uh, example. So in verses 24 and 25, Jesus says, How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now this, this illustration is meant to be somewhat absurd. I think Jesus is referring to a literal needle here. Uh, some have have surmised that it may be a, a gate in Jerusalem called the, the, the needle gate. But I think he, he's referring to an actual point of a needle. Now think about that. Think how big a camel is and how small the point of a needle is. Absolutely impossible for that camel to go through the eye of a needle. But Jesus says it would be, be easier for that to happen than for someone who's wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. What Jesus is establishing here for us is the impossibility of sinners being able to obey on their own efforts and earn eternal life. And you might be saying, well, Jesus isn't saying that. He's not saying it's impossible for everybody. He's just saying it's impossible for those who have wealth. You have to remember, Jesus, probably for the sake of time, is just fleshing out one of these commandments, the Eighth Commandment. And there's nothing objectively wrong or evil about wealth. In fact, when we look at the creation mandates, wealth is something that we're called to pursue as image bearers of God. Wealth is not objectively evil. The problem is with our hearts. Our hearts are naturally disposed to idolatry. To making wealth an idol, an object of worship. Jesus really could have said the same thing with any one of these other commandments. He could have said how hard it is for people who live in a world with the opposite sex to enter the kingdom of God. The seventh commandment, do not commit adultery. The problem with the seventh commandment, uh, the, pro- the problem it was not the opposite gender. Just like the problem is not wealth. It's with our hearts that are prone to lust. Jesus could have just as easily said how difficult it is for those who have parents to enter the kingdom of God. The fifth commandment. The problem is not authority figures. The problem is not having parents. But we know that for those of us who have parents, who have authority figures in our lives, we are breakers of the fifth commandment because we have sinful hearts. So again, the the problem is not with the thing, wealth, opposite gender, Authority figures. The problem is with our hearts. And so Jesus is saying it's impossible for sinners to enter the kingdom of God. We break every commandment, we turn everything into an idol. Calvin talked about our hearts being in our natural fallen state idol factories. We just everything that we look at at this creation, even those things which are objectively good, we turn into idols. We serve them. Thus, Jesus is positing that it's impossible for sinners to enter the kingdom of God by their own efforts. We have to remember that it wasn't always this way. God made Adam and Eve with the law of God written upon their hearts, and they had the capability of perfectly obeying the law of God. But we know what happened. They, of their own free will, uh, disobeyed God plunge themselves and all their descendants into sin and misery. And thus, we no longer have that ability to perfectly obey the law of God. And now the law is a burden, a weight that crushes us. For those of you who growing older, you can determine in your own mind if, if uh, this characterizes you or not. But you may think back to times in your youthful state of things that you could do that you would not try to do now. You've grown older. Such is the case for fallen, sinful human beings. We can't keep the law perfectly. It's a crushing burden that we cannot bear. It's like loading a pack of of bricks into a kindergartner's backpack, something that we, we can't bear. It's impossible. It's impossible. Well, this rich young ruler went away sorrowful. He was crushed by the burden of God's law. He felt the weight of God's law. He, he felt the full demand of God's law, and he realized he couldn't do it, and so he walks away. Sorrowful. I think this oftentimes happens in our own day and age where people get a taste of Christianity, but the taste of Christianity that they get is really just a, a way of life, a set of moral codes. They join Christianity for really the same reason anybody joins any other world religion. Good values. Good values. But at some point, they begin to feel the burden of of God's law. They feel the guilt of sin, and and the way that they're told to absolve their sin is by just doing a little bit more, a little bit more effort into it. And at some point, they get exhausted, burnt out, and they just throw up their hands and, and walk away from the whole thing. We're meant to be crushed by the law of God. We're meant to feel the burden that God's law truly is upon the shoulders of sinful people. But that's not meant to lead us to walk away from Christianity, but it's meant for us to cry out to God for help and for mercy, similar to how that tax collector in that parable in earlier in chapter 18 cried out for God, cried out to God for mercy. Well, the disciples at this point are quite perplexed. They are still living under the notion that earthly blessings are a sign of God's blessing. Our earthly riches are a sign of God's blessing. And they're thinking to themselves, well, OK, if the rich, the wealthy, if it's impossible for them to enter the kingdom of God, what does that say for us? I mean, we've left everything, vocations, wealth, homes, to follow Jesus. They're poor. So if the rich are unable to enter the kingdom of God. What does it say uh, for those who are poor? Well, in verse 27, Jesus says what's impossible for man is made possible by God. Sinful man is not able to obey God's law and inherit eternal life. That's impossible. However, God's made a way. This now has been made possible by God. How? Well, Jesus doesn't fully fill in the dots here, but like many passages in the Gospels, we continue to read in our New Testaments, and the epistles, which are a higher stage of revelation, oftentimes make clear what is more unclear in the Gospels. And so, if you remember from Romans chapter 10, which we read for our declaration of pardon earlier in our service, Paul was contrasting these two different forms of righteousness. A righteousness that's based on the law, and a righteousness that's based on faith. Jesus already has condemned us and told us that that righteousness based on the law is is unattainable for us. We can't do it. What now is this other form of righteousness? This righteousness which is based on faith. Well, Paul makes that clear in Galatians 4. In Galatians 4, we read that Jesus was born under the law. Which means he was born under the same law that he is giving this rich young ruler. Jesus himself had to obey the fifth commandment, the sixth commandment, the seventh commandment, the eighth commandment, all the commandments of God. He was born under the law. Why? To redeem those who are under the law. Which means Jesus came to this earth under the law to remove the burden that the law of God is upon the shoulders of sinful human beings. To redeem those who are under the law. So that we might receive adoption as sons, we might inherit the kingdom. Jesus came under the law, and he was the only human being who perfectly kept the law. Jesus is the only human being who has a perfect track record before the law of God. And thus, Jesus was the only human being who, by his own merits, earned eternal life. What happens after Jesus dies and rises from the dead? Sends into heaven sits at God's right hand. What what does that mean? Well, It means that he has entered the new creation. He's entered eternal life. Jesus was the only human being to ever enter eternal life based on his own obedience. He was the only person who was able to keep this principle. And Jesus then is referred to as our mediator, our representative, our substitute. It's like Uh, It's like someone having a pinch hitter. And that pinch pinch hitter hits a home run and that then is is tallied uh, by your name in 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 the stat sheet, in the stat book. Jesus does these things as our substitute, which means his obedience is credited to us. His righteousness is credited to us. And thus we receive freely the reward of eternal life. So Jesus did these things on our behalf. And thus we are the recipients of eternal life based on his obedience and his righteousness. Often times we speak a lot about the death of Christ as being so foundational to our salvation, which it is. But just having our sins forgiven would not give us the right to eternal life. Why? Because positive righteousness is needed. A perfect track record before the law of God is absolutely required. And that's what Jesus does for us in his whole life. His whole life of obedience is given and credited to us. And that's this third foundational point that Jesus gives us, is that we are meant to be crushed so that we look to Jesus as the one who has obeyed the law for us and earned eternal life for us as our substitute. So where do you find your rest? Do you find your rest solely in this work of Christ which is outside of you, which is fixed, which doesn't ebb and flow with your emotions, your performance? Or do you still partly find your rest in something that you're bringing to the table, in your participation? You think that what's going to grant you the entrance into God's kingdom at the, on the last day is your faith and your best efforts. Is it solely the work of Christ, which is finished? telltale sign that we still struggle to rest in the work of Christ is when the law becomes burdensome. 1 John 5 tells us that those who are children of God, um, for those who are children of God, the law is no longer a burden. It's no longer burdensome. For those outside of Christ, the law is a burden, or it should be a burden, if you realize what it's saying. Because it says, do this and live, don't do this and be cursed. But for those who are in Christ, that burden is removed because if you think of the burden of the law as a pack that's on your shoulders that pack is made up of curses and threats, the curses and threats of the law what Jesus does is he removes the curses and threats and thus removes the burden of God's law but what happens is that we as who have been adopted, redeemed in Christ we begin to revert back to our old way of thinking, to our old, old selves you know, Just as imagine an orphan who was adopted later on in, in their childhood and, and never had someone who loved him or her, cared for him or her, and then later on, teenage years, are adopted to a loving family. I would imagine that individual would struggle to fully live as if they're a loving, uh, member of a loving family. We often revert back to thinking and living as if they're still an orphan. Well, we do the same thing when it comes to our Christian lives. We oftentimes revert back and live as if we're still an orphan. Live as if the law of God, which should no longer be burdensome, still has the burden of threats and curses attached to it. And so is the law of God burdensome. For those of you who are in Christ, you have a new relationship to God's law. It no longer threatens you, it no longer curses you. But rather, it's the law of gratitude. So we obey it as a child seeks to obey his or her father we're called to rest, rest in Christ and from that foundation of rest we move forward to our neighbor in love well in verses 29 through 30 uh, Jesus concludes by noting that these disciples gave up much to profess faith in Christ and this tells us that sometimes a profession of faith in Christ, resting in Christ will come with great consequences familial consequences persecution even But Jesus here again reminds us to focus on the glories of the age to come. The glories of life eternal uh, far outweighs the cost of of professing faith in in this veil of tears in the here and now. Well, Congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, in this passage Jesus is continuing to unravel our own false conception of, of righteousness. And he does this by asserting that very foundational principle, obedience. That God's law equals eternal life. This is something that we as fallen sinners are unable to do. It's impossible. But yet, this is the very reason why Christ came to this earth. He came to this earth to obey God's law for you, to earn eternal life for you, and you consequently are called to rest in Him as infants. Infants rest in the arms of their parents. So let us pray. Lord, we give thanks for who you are as our loving, heavenly Father. Give thanks that you, in the fullness of time, did indeed send your Son to this earth to remedy the predicament.